0: Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in five dollars per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcast network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I'm coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a cash app profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so today we are going to be doing a mid-year check-in on our Jeffersonian reading list that i sent out at the end of 2021, actually in December of 2021, and we're just going to do a check-in. We're going to make sure that you guys are going through this and actually understanding the Jeffersonian worldview. So we're going to check in with the books that I recommended. We're also going to pull some selected excerpts from some of these books and really grind out what it means to be a Jeffersonian in modern times since so many of us don't farm anymore. So let's get started. Uh, the very first book of this series that I recommended was Dr. Brian McClanahan's The Constitution or the Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, rather excuse me. And in this book, the reason I recommended this one first is because this book really does spell out the compact fact of the Constitution. It spells out the Jeffersonian understanding of the Constitution based on how the Federalist actually sold the documents when it was going through the ratification process. So it is the originalist position on the Constitution. Wonderful book. Absolutely wonderful book. And that is going to be the bedrock for all of this. Understanding the Constitution in its appropriate context is going to be the bedrock of our understanding of how things were supposed to be. So that's the book you should have read for January. Now, for February, the book for that month was A Better Guide Than Reason by Mel Bradford. And in this book, one of the best essays in here, in my opinion, because it's a compilation of essays was where Bradford destroys the Lincolnian concept of the Declaration as a proposition, or the Declaration making the United States a proposition nation, based on the principle of egalitarianism. So in the back of this book, actually towards the end of it, there's an essay in here. It's called Lincoln, the Declaration and Secular Puritanism, a Rhetoric for Continuing Revolution, so this is the section where bradford spells that out and in here he talks about lincoln's gettysburg address and how lincoln basically deified the revolution uh, that was going on between 1861 and 1865. so i'll just read you an excerpt of this essay that i found really fascinating now bradford does have another book called original intentions where he delves into this a little bit deeper than what he does in this particular book but this will kind of open your eyes and and provide the pathway to get there so, in *A Better Guide Than Reason*, Mel Bradford says, "I have already mentioned the quality of counterclaim or legal charge in our manifesto of 1776, talking about the Declaration. Only the opening sentences of paragraph two of that special pleading seem out of place in the Declaration's forensic whole. And as the epideictic and beatific swallows up liberty and equality in Lincoln's Civil War speech, talking about the Gettysburg Address." Here also the disposition and weight of other components in the total apologia, their historic and prescriptive appeal to the customary in the English, the inherited rules governing prince and subject, cancel out or modify the apparent vanity of self-evident in all men. There are those who argue that the peculiar lines were to serve as a concession to the revolution's leftmost wing. Others contend that they may be no more than what Mr. Jefferson was able to smuggle in in satisfaction of his philosophic streak, because his compatriots in the Continental Congress refused to read into his composition anything more than was anticipated in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. The reader should look elsewhere for a history of the Whig doctrine and idiom which could neutralize such words, only as much equality as is consonant with liberty, and necessary to a modest minimum of human dignity for freemen, and only that liberty recommended by the English experience and enjoyed by the Anglo-Saxon forebears. But, and this is my point... The dominance of that Whig temper is evident, especially in the deletions from Jefferson's original draft, which the Congress imposed upon their young spokesman. We can presuppose it. Now, what is a solicitation from a given Whig law and for a good repute among the nations? First of all, it is a bill of particulars against the royal government, making plain that the Crown, in violating its well defined prerogative, has forfeited all purchase upon its chartered creations, the American colonies. It is noteworthy that the Declaration speaks for the independence of the separate individual colonies and thus belies Mr. Lincoln's purposefully mistaken chronology. So there, Bradford is saying that the real important part of the Declaration is where it says these colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Then he goes on to say, following the pattern of another variety of legal instrument, it says, you, not I, destroyed our connection. For under a rule of law, liegemanship and lordship are indeed like partner and partner, man and wife. Neither role exists unless both are observed with some strictness. Portions of Jefferson's catalog, especially in his original version, are reaching after visceral influence on natural, not reasonable, and emotional men. Persons of distinctive temper, antecedents, and culture. Often overlooked, they add racial and Christian traditionalist appeals to the case at law. Certain lines evoke the horror of servile insurrection and black overpopulation. Others refer to mercenaries and kindred affronts to the common blood. And still others complain of British involvement with merciless Indian savages. Elsewhere, we read of the impropriety of resemblance to the conduct of infidel powers in the policy of a Christian king. Lastly, all of this in view of paragraph 2, surprise is hedged with a disclaimer that the colonies intended no revolution when they first made remonstrance, and it's coupled with an admission that political restiveness and innovation are, in most circumstances, to be avoided. And this is a common line of thought that we would actually see a little bit later on with John Randolph of Roanoke when he gives his King Number speech, where he talks about once you set a revolution in motion, it becomes impossible to control, and ultimately it will consume you. So what Bradford's basically saying here is we have this unbroken line of thought from Jefferson in 1776 all the way to John Randolph of Roanoke and the Virginia State Constitution Convention of 1829. So Bradford doesn't directly uh, reference that, but that is something that we as Jeffersonians, we can see a very clear line there when we put this in the proper perspective. And then he goes on to say, "...the close goes the same way, a retreat into sacred honor. Prescriptive laws and kings and honor have nothing to do with the self-evident and metaphysically proved first principles of Burke's Doctors of the Closet." History is their legitimate ancestor. Trial and error, reputation and disrepute, sifting and selection stand behind Jefferson's appeal. And that is where I'm going to cut off the excerpt here, but that is the part that I really wanted to get to. So, the Jeffersonian tradition, again, relies on over a thousand years of lived human experience under the British system. It does also reach back to the Roman system before that and even the Greeks before the Romans. So, the Jeffersonian tradition was a bedrock of liberty based on thousands of years of human experience, trial and error, very hard-won progress. That's how we got to where we were. That's why you have in the 19th century and the late 18th century some of the best statesmen that could ever be produced in the entire world, in my opinion. You have these people who are looking at all the experience that was recorded in history, and they're saying, okay, these are some of the things that worked really well, these are some of the things that did not work well at all, and these are some of the things that were just outright bad. And they were trying to sift through the bad to get rid of the bad and keep the good. Now, unfortunately, we did not live up to the mantle as the years would wear on. But that is what the Jeffersonian tradition draws upon is over a thousand years of experience that other people went through before us. We recognize, yes, humankind, is there is a continuity there. And then the book for the month of March is Union and Liberty, which is a compilation of some of John C. Calhoun's most impactful speeches and or essays Originally, I suggested that if you didn't want to read this whole thing, that you just read his Disquisition and the Discourse on Government and the Constitution. I'm going to amend that and say that in addition to those two, you also really need to read the Fort Hill Address, which is included in this compilation work. So I'm going to read to you the excerpt about the Fort Hill Address, which was given on July 26, 1831. So it says, by 1831, Calhoun's role in the exposition and protest had become a matter of common knowledge. That's where he basically recommended that South Carolina nullify the tariff bill. As Calhoun himself notes in his introductory remarks to the editor of the Pendleton Messenger, his official role as president of the Senate had afforded him no opportunity to express his own position on the matter of the proper relation between the states and the general government. Calhoun clarifying his own position declares, quote, stripped of all its covering, the naked question is whether ours is a federal or a consolidated government, a constitutional or absolute one, a government resting ultimately on the solid basis of the sovereignty of the states, or on the unrestrained will of a majority, a form of government as in all other unlimited ones in which injustice, violence, and force must ultimately prevail, end quote. Calhoun leaves no doubt that an improper answer to the question will mean nothing less than the total destruction of liberty. While the Ford Hill Address is a forceful articulation of the state's rights position on the federal-state question, its endorsement of the natural right of interposition is much more guarded. Calhoun's sense of propriety as Vice President of the United States, as well as his hope of forging a new national coalition, prevented a more radical sentiment or statement. Calhoun himself admits the cautious nature of his remarks when he notes in his letter to General Hamilton in August 1832 that his initial discussion in the Fort Hill Address fell far short of exhausting the subject. Still, the Fort Hill Address remains a critical document in American history, for it is Mr. Calhoun's first public effort to generalize the controversy between South Carolina and the federal government. So with some context about what the Fort Hill Address was intended to address, Let's now look and see some of the things that Calhoun actually said in here. So he says, The great and leading principle is that the general government emanated from the people of the several states, forming distinct political communities, and acting in their separate and sovereign capacity, and not from all of the people forming one aggregate political community, that the Constitution of the United States is in fact a compact to which each state is a party, in the character already described in that the several states or parties have a right to judge of its infractions and in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of power not delegated, they have the right in the last resort to use the language of the Virginia resolutions, quote, to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil and for maintaining within their respective limits the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them, end quote. And so right there, Calhoun is given a very brief and succinct definition of the compact fact of the union, that the states created the general government, and the general government is nothing more than an agent of the states, while the states themselves reserve the right to determine when the general government or their common agent has overstepped its boundary. So very strong point that Calhoun makes there. Again, this is right off the bat within the address. And then he goes on, too, to talk about a tyranny of the majority, especially when you start applying that to the federal government and you start trying to do everything from the top down. So he says, No one can have a higher respect for the maxim that the majority ought to govern than I have, taken in its proper sense, subject to the restrictions imposed by the Constitution and confined to objects in which every portion of the community have similar interests. But... It is a great error to suppose, as many do, that the right of a majority to govern is a natural and not a conventional right, and therefore absolute and unlimited. By nature, every individual has the right to govern himself, and governments, whether founded on majorities or minorities, must derive their right from the assent expressed or implied of the governed, and be subject to such limitations as they may impose, in our case via the written constitution, and also the separate state constitutions. So Calhoun there, obviously talking about what happens when you have one faction overtake the general government and try to use that engine to oppress the other section. He would actually talk about that uh, explicitly later on in the address. And then Calhoun also goes on to talk about the genius of the American system, because not only did you have a separation of powers in the different departments of the general government— But you also had a fourth leg of the stool, geographically, which was the several states. So he says, "...a plan was adopted better suited to our situation, but perfectly novel in its character. The powers of government were divided, not as heretofore in reference to classes, but geographically." And so that becomes important because Calhoun is openly saying, look, the states are the fourth leg of this whole system. You have to have the states as states. They must be there to preserve their powers. Otherwise, you're going to get an absolute consolidated monstrosity. So very strong point, again, that Calhoun is making here. And then when it comes to having the right to determine infractions on the part of the states and making sure that the states have the power to defend their preserved rights, he has this to say, So essential is the principle that to withhold the right from either, where the sovereign power is divided, is in fact to annul the division itself and to consolidate in the one left in the exclusive possession of the right, "...all powers of government, for it is not possible to distinguish practically between a government having all power and one having the right to take what powers it pleases." So what he's saying by that is, look, if we take this ability away from either set of government, if we take it away from the federal government or if we take it away from any of the state governments, then it's going to reside exclusively in the one and destroy the other... Now, in his day, even before the War for Southern Independence, he could already see the dangers of nationalism creeping in, and the general government was becoming stronger than its creators. So, even though he's saying, yes, this applies equally to both, the real threat was that the states were being totally consolidated here into a national government. So, making sure you had some sort of veto power in both levels of the government would be the safe check here, or it would be the safeguard. And Calhoun would say this on that. He said so far from extreme danger, I hold that there never was a free state in which this great conservative principle, indispensable to all, was ever so safely lodged. And so, again, he's talking about how necessary it was that you would give the states this sort of power to let them actually defend themselves, give some teeth to the 10th Amendment, we could say. So, this is a wide-ranging speech, because from here, he then goes on to talk about the abuses of the Judiciary Department. He says, I yield I trust to few in my attachment to the Judiciary Department, talking about the Federal Judiciary. I am fully sensible of its importance and would maintain it to the fullest extent in its constitutional powers and independence. But it is impossible for me to believe that it was ever intended by the Constitution that it should exercise the power in question... Or that it is competent to do so, and if it were, that it would be a safe depository of the power. And here he's talking about the power of basically dictating what the Constitution is whenever there's a question between the general government and the states. And this is something that Jefferson would talk about. This is something Madison would talk about. Spencer Rowan would talk about when it came to the abuses of the Marshall Court and the expansion of the Judicial Department under the Marshall Court. So Calhoun here is not saying anything revolutionary or progressive or anything like that. Calhoun is actually basing his argument on a conservative principle of decentralization and states' rights. That is the conservative position that Calhoun is defending. And then from here, he would go on to spell out a pretty lengthy history of the judicial abuses. So that, I mean, that's very interesting to read. I'm not going to read all of that right now. But then he goes on to say the states, as has been shown, formed this compact, acting as sovereign and independent communities. Again, talking about the Constitution. The general government is but its creature. And though in reality a government with all the rights and authority which belong to any other government within the orbit of its powers, it is nevertheless a government emanating from a compact between sovereigns. And partaken in its nature and object of the character of a joint commission appointed to superintend and administer the interest in which all are jointly concerned, but having beyond its proper sphere no more power than if it did not exist. And so, again, he's saying, look, if the states ever decided they wanted to disband this thing, it's going to be as if it never existed because it is a creature of the states, it is a creation of the states. And then he cites Jefferson in support of this, which is an interesting quote here. But from here, again, this is a really wide-ranging speech that he gave. So from here, after he quotes Jefferson in support of his argument, he actually goes to talk about the tariff, and he says, Feeling that such would be justly the case, I am compelled, reluctantly, to touch on the tariff, so far at least, as may be necessary to illustrate the opinions which I have already advanced. And from here, he talks about how one section, being the southern section, wanted light tariffs, light taxes and economy and government, whereas the other section, mainly the Northeast and the manufacturing states, wanted to use the general government via the tariff to abuse the South, take all of the fruits of the South's labor, and reappropriate them to Northern projects and Northern pet industries. And Calhoun very succinctly sums up what was a burgeoning sectional crisis, at least at this point in time. Again, this is 1831. He says, nor is it less certain that this unhappy conflict flowing directly from the tariff Has extended itself to the halls of legislation and has converted the deliberations of Congress into an annual struggle between the two sections, North and South. The stronger to maintain and increase the superiority it has already acquired, and the other to throw off or diminish its burden. So there he's talking about the North wants to maintain its superiority and power while the South is trying to cast it off. A struggle in which all the noble and generous feelings of patriotism are gradually subsiding into sectional and selfish attachments. He's talking about people becoming more parochial. Nor has the effect of this dangerous conflict ended here. It has not only divided the two sections on the important point already stated, but on the deeper and more dangerous questions, the constitutionality of a protective tariff, and the general principles and the theory of the Constitution itself. "...the stronger in order to maintain their superiority given a construction to the instrument which the other believes would convert the general government into a consolidated, irresponsible government with the total destruction of liberty, and the weaker seeing no hope of relief with such assumption of powers turning its eye to the reserved sovereignty of the states as the only refuge from oppression." And so notice there, Calhoun is not saying anything at all about slavery. Right here, it's all about the economics. He's saying, look, the North is using the creature of the states to oppress us. They are using it to tax us to death. And the South is turned into the only bastion left to it, the sovereignty of the states. It was truly all about states' rights. All the way back in 1831... It's about states' rights. It is not about the slavery question. It is strictly about states' rights and the power of the general government to tax one section out of existence. And the South said, no, we're going to assert states' rights and protect ourselves from that. And I say good on them. And then just one more excerpt that really kind of drives home this point that the South was concerned primarily about states' rights and being able to maintain themselves within the Union as a true section or as a true conglomerate of separate sovereign states Calhoun goes on to say the country is now more divided than in 1824 again this he's given this speech in 1821 or excuse me 1831 so 7 years later he says the country is now more divided than in 1824 and then more than in 1816 the majority may have increased but the opposite sides are beyond dispute more determined and excited than at any preceding period the increase in embarrassment and distress of the staple states the growing conviction from experience that they are caused by the prohibitory system principally and that under its continued operation, their present pursuits must become profitless, and with a conviction that their great and peculiar agricultural capital cannot be diverted from its ancient and hereditary channels without ruinous losses, all concur to increase instead of dispelling the gloom that hangs over the future. And so, notice what Calhoun is saying there. he's, he's saying, look, we are at a divergent point. We are at a crossroads, and the South wants to go one way, while the North goes the other. But the South is not going to give this up without a fight because it will ruin them. It will ruin them economically. It will ruin them culturally. That's what Calhoun is saying here. And so that is going to conclude the excerpts that we read from the Ford Hill Address. Again, this book is called Union and Liberty, and it is a compilation of some of John C. Calhoun's most impactful works. I would encourage all of you to read this if you haven't already, but you should have read it in March. And let's go ahead now and get into the book that you were going to read for April, that we were supposed to read for April. And this book is Tom Wood's book, Nullification. And Tom, in this book, definitely draws on a lot of early American history documents. You got the Suffolk Resolves mentioned in there, the South Carolina Nullification Crisis is mentioned in there. So outstanding resource on all the different times that nullification has been used in American history, and every time it's been tried, it has worked. And Tom also gets into the Fort Hill address by John C. Calhoun. So if you want his commentary on there, great book to read. And then the next book for, so for me is I'll take my stand. And this is going to be your introduction to the Southern agrarians. So this book was written in 1930. And again, the agrarians at this point are saying, look, this industrial system really is not working. You've already had the great depression getting started And they're saying, we don't like the consolidation of industry. We don't like the system that has been wrought upon us over the last 70 years since the end of the war for Southern independence. And they're they're trying to detail a way out of it. Now, this book is more so dedicated to just kind of pointing out some of the flaws in the industrialist system. Their next book in our book for June is going to be Who Owns America? A New Declaration of Independence, also by the Southern Agrarians. And Who Owns America was written really as a pragmatic follow-up. So they're saying, okay, look, and I'll take my stand. We pointed out the problems. Now we're going to give you the solutions. So this is a really good book. Again, I've said this multiple times on this show. This book really did change my outlook pretty much completely on how I viewed the current economy and how I viewed my relationship with libertarianism. Because there are a lot of things that are bad. Even if it's truly private consolidation, we should never cheer consolidation, even if it's public or private. So very good book, because they talk about what it's going to take to really assert independence again, and what it's going to take to have a yeoman citizenry that can stand on its own two feet again. And guess what? You can't really get that when everybody depends on somebody else for their wages. However, if you have people who are willing to return to the land and really give up certain things, certain trinkets to maintain their independence, then you can make some progress. And that's really kind of the focus of this book, but they get into some more of the nitty-gritty as far as the problem of consolidation in the private economy. So outstanding book there. And that will wrap us up. I do apologize for the brief episode today. I've been running around like a chicken with my head cut off this week with baby appointments and schoolwork and all such as that. But thank you all again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, we are expecting Little Miss Jeffersonian to come kicking and screaming into the world later this year. So if y'all want to help us out with any of the expenses we expect with her, I have a link for a registry in the show notes page. Or if you would like, please consider becoming a contributing member so we can defray some of the diaper expenses. I call it helping me establish my diaper fund. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your go-backs today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.